A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. I'm sick of your lies. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Case of democracy, very good. (laughs) Hello and welcome to this very special Democracy Sausage episode being recorded in front of a live audience at the ANU's Cambry Centre in the Manning-Clark Theatre. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. And I'd first like to acknowledge the land on which we are meeting tonight, that of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Now, we've got an all-star cast tonight, an all-star panel for this discussion, being recorded just days out from the 2022 election. And there will be an opportunity for you to ask questions. The way we've done this in the past is we've really just allowed it to occur as those questions arise to you rather than doing it at the end because presumably if you do have a question or or, or some point that needs to be injected into a discussion, um, you want to do it when that particular discussion is occurring. So we have a microphone at the bottom of each of these two stairs uh, and if you make your way to those, uh, we, we, you know, we won't have a chance for long discussions or for multiple questions, but I think we can fit a few in and we'd be very happy uh, to do that. Now, joining me as usual is the political scientist and director of the ANU Centre for the Study of Australian Politics, Dr. Maria Tafaga. Welcome, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hello, everyone. Also back with us, I'm delighted to say, is Emeritus Professor Judith Brett, author of countless books and articles and Australia's foremost expert on the Liberal Party, although she may now be well over writing about it, I just overheard her saying. Um, <laughs> Sick of and, and of course, Judith is the author of, uh, as I say, a number of books, uh, a very brilliant one in 2021 called Doing Politics, which I highly recommend to you. And just before that, in 2019, she had a, a very well-titled book called From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. So welcome, Judith. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. 
Indeed, I should say welcome back because you have been on Democracy Sausage before as well. In fact, uh, this is also the case for our next guest. Finally, Sky News chief anchor and one of the press gallery's wisest observers of the political landscape, Kieran Gilbert. Welcome back to you, Thank Kieran. You. Thanks, Mark. Now, we're just going to have a discussion about where we are in this election campaign. There's so many issues to discuss, so many elements of this election campaign. We're all on the edge of our seats, uh, wondering how it actually gets answered in the next uh, 72 hours or whatever it is. Maths was never my strong point. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it's, 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 it's very much in the hands of the voters. A lot of people have voted already, but there'll be plenty more people to vote and uh, not long after this time on Saturday night, we'll know whether there's been a change of government or not. Um, Maria, I might start with you. Uh, what's struck you about this campaign in, in terms of uh, the, the, the atmosphere of it and what's different about this one? I guess um, there are two things that have really stood out to me. Um, the first is um, what I like to call the revenge of the elites, uh, which is... I guess the sort of teal independent phenomena and um, a kind of reckoning uh, amongst a certain cohort of voters who, who have been taken for granted and are certainly not used to that and kind of know how to respond. Um, and the, the second big phenomena that I think has really stood out to me, um, which I'm sure everyone has an opinion on, is um, this might really truly be the end of the national swing like we already sort of we've already sort of seen the breakdown of i guess the national centralized campaign and this is sort of the tail end of that was the reckoning of that yeah so you're saying that uh, the idea of there being any any real meaningful purpose in talking about a swing nationally is 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 disappearing because it's so different from state to state and seat to seat yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we used to really talk about um, a uniform swing. Uh, we used to really rely on the two-party preferred vote as a statistic. Um, it's, you know, increasingly not as meaningful because uh, several reasons, one being that more and more people don't vote for one of the two major parties, so the noise in that measure is getting worse. Uh, and also in this campaign, there's an awful lot of people who have delayed making a decision up until the end. And typically, uh, those people are dropped from the, the sample and um, that's one of the reasons for the inaccuracy in the last uh, election campaign, that and, you know, problems with the sampling and herding and so on and so forth. Yeah, this is the idea that the pollsters uh, simply made calculations, learned calculations, or at least that's what they thought they were in terms of that undecided vote and allocated it according to the way preferences yeah, had gone last time. Yeah, to the last election so yeah. yeah, that's right, uh, the uh, art of politics. Yeah, and, and I think there'll probably be a fair few people in this room wondering whether we didn't see today with uh, a couple of polls, whether we didn't see a significant number of those people breaking in a decisive way for the coalition or whether that's, you know, not the case, whether we can rely on that or not. Um, what about you, Judith? Any thoughts on the overall tenor of the campaign? Well, I think just following up um, on the lack of usefulness or the declining usefulness of the um overall idea of the national swing. I think what we've seen in the media is a lot more focus on the battles in individual seats. I've certainly, um, you know, the, the age has been following the contest obviously in Kuyong, in Chisholm, in Goldstein, um, Lingari. Um, so I think that's that's different in the way the media's covered it. 
Yeah, I wonder, Kieran, um, you being our official media person here, I mean, you, you uh, hosted the first Prime Ministerial Opposition Leader debate in this election campaign, the Sky News People's Forum, and you've also hosted one of the um, one of those teal debates the, between Josh Frydenberg and Monique Ryan in Kuyong. Uh, what, what's your response to that uh, observation that there's a there's a, a, a much more kind of granular approach to the way the, these elections, or, or differential way, uh, differential approach to the way this election is being covered? I, I would say that what we're seeing in this to respond to what Judith said, and and also your sort of helicopter view. What we're seeing is the flip of what happened in 2019, in my view, where Bill Shorten was pulled in different directions on climate issues. This is happening to Morrison as we speak, and this is on show with the Teal Independents, and they're trying to rush, sort of get some equilibrium between that and what they're saying in, in Queensland. Now, I'm advised that in the Nationals polling fell dramatically when Matt Canavan said net zero is dead recently. Um, I think what we're seeing as well as part of this election is the end, and I think it comes as a relief to many in this room, the end of the weaponisation of climate and climate wars. Their polling dropped dramatically off the back of Canavan's comments, I'm advised, and I think what what we're seeing here is, and it might sound odd, to, to us in Canberra, but the nationals in seats in central Queensland are actually the – they have to become and are now a more moderate middle on the spectrum with 15 20% going to one nation. And when they come out with comments like that after the government committed to net zero by 2050, it has an adverse effect. So I, seeing, I think in the teals you're seeing it being stretched and in the national seats you're being it, seeing it stretched – and I think it's a flip of what happened to Shorten in 2019. What yeah. is wrong with Matt Canavan? Tell us. What's that, sorry? What's wrong with Matt Canavan? What, what, what's his deal? <laughs> Tell us, Kieran. Sorry, Mark. That's above my pay grade. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting question because I've been thinking about, as I guess uh, all of us do as we think about the various scenarios that could occur with the election if it goes decisively one way or the other and what happens to the loser and so forth. And one of the things that occurred to me was that there would be enormous – those pressures you talk about inside on the conservative side may result in a number of people breaking away. We already saw George mm. Christensen break away from the LNP in Queensland and he's lining up as a, as a Senate candidate for One Nation. Um, Canavan, armed with a six-year sinecure from the, from the voters, might decide – well, he obviously isn't campaigning for them if he's going to do them material damage. And you're also seeing it with Palmer's spend. This is another big yeah. point yes. of differentiation with the last campaign. In the final weeks, it was all zeroed in on Bill Shorten, his tens of millions of dollars. Everyone would see his advertising is now on both of them. And I think that that is an important development in this campaign as well. So, again, on the right, it's a splintering and in the stress for Morrison. And I, Mark, just to go back to your point about have we seen a tightening, I wouldn't be making too much of that. Uh, I don't think we're seeing a tightening to the extent that we did last time. And I think Labor is very much ahead and in the box seat to win this weekend. Well, let me draw you out on that because the numbers in Resolve and I think in Essential um, were 51-49 uh, two-party preferred, which is quite a bit different from the uh, you know the 
uh, type lead that Labor has enjoyed for most of this campaign and even bigger in some polls. You don't you're not you're not worried about that you're not i mean not not concerned about that in terms labor, of its reliability labor people senior labor figures i've spoken to in the last few hours and today throughout the day and in as recently as an hour ago are saying their tracking has not budged their tracking polling of all the key seats hasn't moved so i i'm not saying it's a rogue poll but it might be a variable poll and I don't think it's happened. I don't think we're seeing a tightening to the extent that that poll suggests. It's based on, uh, sorry to sort of dwell on this point, but it's based on a, um, a fairly low primary vote for Labor. I think of 34. Um, 31. 31 now, yeah. That's what, that's they, right. that's was what that poll said. That's yeah. right, yeah. Now, Resolve's had a very low primary vote for Labor quite consistently. Uh, and I wonder whether their methodology is just different. I guess these are the sorts of uh, ins and outs that can be talked about after the election. But, yeah, it's really, really interesting because as soon as you get a very low primary vote like that, of course you're going to calculate a, a significant drop-off in the, uh, in the, in the two-party preferred. The other thing that's really interesting about this, and I, I guess you were um, sort of uh, making reference to this, Maria, is the, just the, un, the not so much the undecideds, but the people who are saying, I'm not going to vote for either side. That poll today had 34% of voters saying they were going to third parties. Um, yeah, that's now, that huge. doesn't mean that's where their vote ends up, of course, in a lot of lower house seats, but sorry, where you go? Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, I think in the last election it was one quarter and, you know, this is an almost 10% increase if that poll is accurate. Like, that is enormous. That is more than one third of the vote that is going uh, to neither of the major uh, parties or at least not in the first instance. And that's um, a major change in, I guess, the sort of long run voting patterns in this country. You know, Australia is um, was a sort of poster child for really high levels of party identification. Essentially, the way you voted in your first election, you'd vote that way till you died. Um, and that's really sort of changed and uh, shifted in, in recent years. And it seems to be a trend that's accelerating. But on the polling figure, you know, 53 to 47, like that's like historic landslide territory, mm, right? Yeah. You know, I think Abbott got something like that, which says something about how quickly he eroded his standing <laughs> after such a victory. Didn't uh, make it to the next election. Indeed. And and Fraser is the other person who I think achieved 53-47. So I'm not surprised that it's narrowed. Like I expect it to. Yeah, it's certainly bigger than Bob Hawke's victory in 83, for example, yeah. I was just going to say about the minority vote, I think we're seeing more strategic voting um, across the electorate too. And I think that's one of the things that's certainly happening in the old Blue Ribbon Liberal seats where Labor voters, uh, I th I've heard, uh, uh, will vote for the independent rather than for Labor and they'll probably vote Labor in the Senate. Yeah, now you're based in Melbourne, right? So you've uh, been watching the campaign down yeah. there. There's a, there's a lot of heat in this uh, sort of teal campaign on both sides, a lot of energy. Um in in the last podcast that we did, uh, live one, I, I actually made a reference to some of your writing on on Deakin uh, and about you know the value of minority government and how mm -hmm. he he actually liked the idea of having to negotiate. This this whole thing's been heavily politicised in this election campaign. You've had this sort of hyperventilating from from the Liberal Party in particular about chaos and instability that's going to occur if any of these people get elected, which is Pretty laughable, but it's but it's. But it's, it's it's. I think it's just shifted because go back a decade and we had the same sort of venting about the fact that the government didn't control the Senate. 
I think yes. people have settled down now. Who controls the media it now? Yeah. Has settled and have got used to the idea that government has to negotiate in the Senate. But there's been a, a strong argument in a lot of amongst well amongst the mainstream parties, but also in the press that that you have to have that Westminster system requires this strong government. Whereas you know I, I actually think that needing to compromise is a good thing. And that's what Deakin thought, isn't it? He actually he made that point that he thought that when he had to negotiate with other parties, Labor that he was in coalition with at yes. one stage, uh, and sometimes other other people who were in, on the official opposition at the time, he said, when I do that, uh, the outcome is more legitimate. He called it organic, I think, yeah. organic Australian policy. It's more acceptable, but it's also, I think, the society's become a lot more complicated than it was in Deakin's day or Menzies' day. And one of the functions of political parties was that they would, if you like, broker amongst the different interests and values and come up with some sort of a compromise. And I think, you know, as we've just heard from Kieran, it's become much harder for the parties to do that. And so actually some of that brokering is now going to happen actually out in the open in the parliament, whereas it once took place inside of the party organisations. So I think that's a shift that we're seeing. And it's one that we shouldn't really be worried about. I mean, you know, Westminster, like you, that's thrown around all the time. It doesn't mean that you have a yeah. majority government. It means you have responsible government, which is just that the legislature is where the government is formed and is accountable to the legislature, which we could argue is happening or not. That's a that's a question of, of some debate. Um, but, you know, I mean, ultimately I think voters, because they are voting strategically, just as you said, Judith, um, are probably becoming more comfortable with the idea of that kind of negotiation happening in the open at the lower house level as well because they look to the major parties and, you know, younger voters increasingly don't want to sign up to uh, a platform. You know, they're, they're, they're interested in specific issues and they're kind of looking to see where that representation lies. I mean, parties exist for parties. They don't exist for, for voters. They exist to essentially organise and, and they're sort of effectively cartels for the gathering of votes so that they can... No, that's the- not quite true, I don't think. Okay. I mean, part, parties have a number of actually quite important functions mm-hmm. in linking the electorate with the government. And so, yes, they're there obviously, you know, to get themselves into parliament, but they they have to negotiate and form a policy out of the various inputs. I mean, now, in a way, because parties have become, have got, they've all got less of a mass base than they used to have, that function isn't being performed as well. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing. But the other thing where I think the Liberal Party in particular is in real trouble is that one of the functions of the parties, one of their roles is to select the people who form the government. And... um, I think one of the things that seems to me that's going on with the teal independence is that if that class fraction of what I would have called the old moral middle class, the sort of, I guess, you know, the the liberal elites break off, where is the Liberal Party going to recruit people who can be competent ministers? You know, Um, because, I mean, if you look at, I know you were going to ask us a question about you know, there's been there's a in the election. There's always a lot of in the media and in the minds of many voters. There's a lot of focus on the contest between the leaders, who's going to be the prime minister. But actually, as important is who's going to be the attorney general. You know, who's um, Michaelia Cash or Mark Dreyfus? You know, um, Tanya Plibersek for education or Stuart Roberts. 
um, Claire O'Neill or Richard Colbeck. I mean, you can just go through them. You should take this on the road. This is <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> but, but it seems to me that Morrison, because he's wanting to run a one-man show with this campaign, I, you know, I saved the country, I did this, you know, my government, um, we haven't seen, apart from Josh Frydenberg and Anne Rustin, we've hardly seen even in nodding heads, um, we see a bit of Peter Dutton. Um, well, look. Uh, let me just let me just explain what I was saying before yes, about parties because I feel that I need to um, <laughs> clarify that. I mean, I accept the point about parties providing institutional ballast in the system. They provide stability and predictability and identifiability for voters. They know essentially if a candidate is a Labor candidate or a Liberal candidate, essentially broadly what they stand for. And as you say, they provide an organising function within the Parliament. And they can put together predictable personnel that, that voters can identify with and so forth. But they do sell themselves, and we've seen them doing this in this election in a really uh, inordinate way, sell themselves as if they are right and good and that any variation from that is somehow dysfunctional. And the attacks on these uh, policy-driven independents have been purely political. These, these people have been running on policy. They've been running on integrity on climate change, on doing something about the poor treatment of women in politics, uh, sometimes in, in um, uh, on, on an economic sphere and fiscal responsibility in Zali Stegel's case, for example. Uh, I think it's also the case with Allegra Spender. You know, they emphasise that as well. These are policy things and worthy policy heads that mm. are being pursued and yet they are attacked as if they are somehow sort of devious uh, Trojan horses, uh, spies, you know, conducting some form of illegitimate political operation. And that's essentially what I'm saying. You know, this idea that parties are good, independents are bad is, I think, a, um, a, well, it's a terrible idea. Kieran. Well, I'll tell you what, they're super capable. The, yeah. They're super capable, the um, independents running. I mean, the paediatric... Uh, professor and, and surgeon in Monique Ryan, Allegra Spender, in, incredibly intelligent, articulate, Zoe Daniel, a, a acclaimed journalist. I mean, these are potent, successful women. And, and, and the people we already have there, uh, Helen Haynes, Rebecca Sharkey, mm. Zali Stegall, these, these, are, these are conscientious, you know, to put it in American terms, conscientious lawmakers actually right. putting forward things, pro, you know, progressing policy. You don't see that from a lot of the dolts that roll up in the party. <laughs> don't you think there's also some miso <laughs> Don't you think there's also an element of misogyny in it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, clearly. Now, we're going to come very closely to a sort of a halftime break, which will be a bit of a faux break, really. But before we do that, we have a question from Astrid I can see here on my right. Away you go, Astrid. Thanks, Mark. Um, Judith, you mentioned the Westminster system and also like popularity politics in that. Today at Press Club, Sky News colleague of Kieran's, Andrew Clonell, was told in effect by Laura Tingle when he was attempting a gotcha to Anthony Albanese to sit down, Andrew, to which he <laughs> promptly did. However, what impact do you feel these gotchas have on the public's influence on their votes? Uh, that's, can I, I, don't, I yeah, I don't think I have a particularly well-informed view on that. So um, I think it probably has a bit of an impact because it provides 
grabs for the undecideds, but I don't, you know, and you hear people saying, well, after Albanese fluffed the employment figures, well, he's not up to it. I've heard that fed by a few people, but well, that was there's the, a lot of other things, charge, you know. Wasn't it? Yeah. Is it like, I mean, is that more important than not turning up for the bushfires? Well, it's certainly more current. That's a, I, I, look. I, I mean, yeah, it's it's an interesting point. Having said that, I, I would defend. I mean, I think it's it's a difficult one. Mostly, the gotcha becomes a problem if you get got, right? Which is to say, if you've got a good yeah. answer for it, the question's gone away, right? And uh, some of them, and and the, the good answer might be the one Adam Bant gave at the press club, where he said, "Google it." Um, <laughs> You know, that might be, but I think I don't think that necessarily would have worked for uh, Albanese on that first day because, you know, here he was presenting as the alternative prime minister. The charge was that he wasn't as economically literate or up to speed. He didn't have the background in terms of uh, his um, ministerial responsibility. And that question got asked. Uh, if he'd answered it, it would barely have been reported. Uh, it's the way it went after that. And I... I, I, I I don't know whether you want to add anything, Kieran, here, but I didn't think that was a – I don't think today's question was in that category anyway. I thought what he was asking – from what I understood, he was asking uh, Albanese if the young man that he had been in the left of the Labor Party was looking at him now, what would he say? Which I he, thought he, did, he did ask him to rule out tax cuts. Uh, sorry, um, tax increases. Yes. And then Anthony Albanese just um, – he, he did respond in the end. He said, uh, well – if you haven't been following, we've got a multinational tax. Yeah, uh, go a tax uh, yeah, increase. That was yeah. the question. I, I actually, people, uh, you know, some of my colleagues in the media and so on have been critical of Albanese's campaign. Uh, I think he's actually, and this might be counterintuitive to to many listening to this, but I, this is my view. I think he's had a good campaign. Um, I don't think those things matter that much. I think that it sort of slips off the radar pretty quickly. And I think if you look at the key moments like. The press club today was his best performance in the campaign. Agree. And his debate performances were very strong. If he didn't win all of them, they were draws uh, at, at, at worst. And then the launch, he did really well. Uh, I don't think he's had a bad campaign. Um, he, a couple of slip-ups. I mean, who get, honestly, who hasn't slipped up uh, exactly. at work? I mean, I, we all do. And I think he's authentic well, didn't the PM flatten the kid today? Well, yeah. <laughs> so for those who missed it, he, he check it out on online. He he, yeah, he slipped in. It's not a great metaphor for the, the final days of the campaign, but uh, he's got it. He, my view is he, he's he's authentic, and he might have had the odd sort of uh, slip up here or there, but really, if you look at the substantive key moments, he's done well, and he's been building through the campaign. And I, I, as I said before, I, I, I still see Labor as being in the box seat and that he is most likely to, to be sworn in as, as Prime Minister within a few days. Maria, we're going to come, we're just going to take a quick break and I'm going to invite you to respond to, to that because I see you, you had some, some okay. points to make there and I think we'll just get the break in now and then we'll come back in a moment. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, Kieran was uh, making the point before about, about Albanese's campaign. I could see you were raring to comment, Maria. Well, I think on the question of gotchas, right, they're ultimately trivial questions. So I'm not surprised that they probably don't matter because they're ephemeral. They're only important if they actually reveal something about the character or uh, the hypocrisy of the person being asked. Um, and that's perhaps why, uh, you know, a politician who sort of claims to be one of the people can't then say what the price of milk is, that might be a problem, which is, you know, why someone like Margaret Thatcher, you know, is part of her um her origin story to kind of be able to know those figures. So, um, well, she did work in a delicatessen, didn't she? I mean, a grocer. grocer. She's a grocer's daughter, you know. And you got to get the terms right and, here. Yeah, I mean, she was not only a woman, but you know, someone from the lower classes to lead that party. So it was a big, big deal for her. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's. I mean, I think that's the thing with gotcha questions. I mean, what are we trying to learn? And and Andrew Clonell was was being you know, pretty cheeky, um, you know, inviting um, uh, Albanese to reflect on his past but then also saying, please don't talk about your about your, your backstory, you know. So I think, I think he, you know, Albanese yeah, was good yeah, as look, got, I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't. I don't think it was much of a gotcha. It was just, he was just being, he was just being cheeky, I think. Uh, it's been a long campaign and I thought that uh, Albanese took that with, with good grace, the, the the you know, he said, "Well, I'm going to do it anyway," and sort of made. That's right. He, he came off the better. Yeah. In that, in that. But yeah. I also think with Albanese, we're getting a different style of man to what we've been used to. With you know, with if you think of Abbott, and not so much Howard, but Abbott and Turnbull and Morrison, we've got these incredibly self-confident men who f- fill the room, if you like. And Albanese is not that sort of a person. And I think it'll be actually very refreshing. I mean, I've been thinking, is he, I mean, like what Chifley was like, you know, he's mm. a he's a more, he, he's a soft, he, he comes over, is le- basically is less egotistical, I would have to say. Um, and, you know, I've often go back to my colleague Graham Little who had a theory of a strong leader and a dependency leader. And I think what we're getting is a shift from the leader who's, who's all about I'm really strong and I'll protect you from the threats. And Morrison's been like an ersatz strong leader because he's, he's set, he projects as strong but then he actually doesn't deliver. We're, but we're getting someone who, I mean, who's talking about we and compassion and, you know, and that's got its own dark sides as well. But um, I, I think it's a shift of, of, of style of leadership that we're seeing with, with Albanese. And so because we're so used to looking for – for that strength, I think some of Albanese's strengths are not as obvious. You know what I thought was really interesting, like listening to you talk, Judith, 
was thinking about I watched the Lee Sales interview with Scott Morrison um, on on Monday, and um, and it and it, occur- it occurred to me this was like the first time apart from the launch I suppose that he was actually trying to defend his government's legacy like all campaign. I mean, what has he been talking about? Like you know, boogeyman over here, Catherine Dave stuff. I mean, like. You know, I mean, if they've got a good economic story to tell, why haven't they been doing that? Like, why am I only hearing now that you saved the country um, at the eleventh hour? Like, I just, I just found that really sort of striking, um, and I think it says an awful lot about, I guess, where the government is at in managing its own legacy and its ability to sort of even tell a sort of story about itself that isn't ultimately about kind of phantoms and boogeymen that they're effect- effectively trying to create. Kieran, is that um, is that a function of a defensiveness, the same sort of defensiveness that another defensiveness that characterises the Morrison campaign is his inability to go to whole parts of the country and and campaign in his own bloody electorates, you know, in yeah. liberal held seats, mm. Morrison is kryptonite. Yeah. That's an extraordinary it's, circumstance. It's, it is. It is. And, um, and, and, and I'm sorry, just, yeah. just to finish the point, I was thinking uh, in, re- in relation to Maria's question about, you know, why am I only hearing about this now, this record? Mm. Well, perhaps the Tracy Grimshaw interview mm. explains that defensiveness there too. Yeah, and, you know, I, I could be wrong and maybe he wins on, on the weekend, but uh, if you've got a Prime Minister who can't go to half a dozen of his own seats, that's not a good start. It's not a good look. And and the other, you know, go, to go back where we were at the start of our discussion, uh, Labor's advertising in 2019 was, I, I don't know if you recall it, but it was it was very average. It was it was partly in due to the fact that Scott Morrison hadn't been in office for that long, so they didn't really have a chance to uh, characterise him, mm-hmm. and they were still talking about him as the top end of town. They were so, campaigning against Turnbull. So yeah, they hadn't weren't able to regroup mm. on their uh, campaign for Turnbull for the daggy dad that Morrison portrays himself as. This time, Labor's ads are right on point. Right, they they are absolutely devastating. And so, if you look at some of those structural things, like he can't go to six you know or more seats. You've got Labor's ads much more effective in twenty twenty two than they were in twenty nineteen. It just is part of that broader picture where it says to me, then as uh, Judith said earlier, you know, they made the uh, um, eloquently the sort of broader issue about the the elites, uh, liberal elites, and you just you're fighting too many battles, and 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 I just don't see how that translates into a majority, even a minority government for them. Judith, it was interesting the uh, point that was made earlier about I think Kieran made in his opening comments about. The, the Liberals being or the Coalition being stretched mm. uh, on that climate question. You've written also about uh, you know, the, the energy and coal issue. Um, the One of the things I noticed is that Dave Sharma, this sort of ties a few of the themes yeah. together, Dave Sharma uh, campaigning in Wentworth is campaigning very, very strongly on his role in having dragged the Coalition to net zero by 2050 and, and made other, other changes. And the candidate in Flynn, which I think was the electorate you were referring to, uh, Kieran, when you said that after Matt Canavan spoke, their numbers went down. Mm-hmm. I think it was in Flynn, which is one of the big coal mining yeah. seats in the country. So it's it's really fascinating. You you join all these things together, as you say, the, uh, the 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 problem of Morrison being persona non grata in some of the safest liberal seats in the country, 
And that problem that was largely Labor's problem in 2019, you know, where Bill Shorten was yeah. accused of walking both sides of the street on climate change and so forth, it's, it's, it is pretty diabolical. But, but I think um, one of the things is that the Liberal Party is paying a big price for its coalition with the Nationals. You know, we, we keep forgetting that they're actually already in a minority. Mm -hmm. They are already a minority government. It's Quite. just that they're in a coalition with the Nationals and we don't know what the agreement is. Whereas Labor is in, even though it wouldn't really admit it, but the, the Labor left, if you like, can, can in a sense fragment across to the Greens and the, and the preferences will still go back. But it makes it a bit easier, I think, for Labor to manage that. Um, so I think the Liberals are in an extraordinarily difficult position because the, it hasn't seemed to play as much now, but the, uh, the, the a vote for Sharma is a vote for Barnaby Joyce, a vote for mm. Frydenberg is a vote for Barnaby Joyce because of the way, particularly in the last six, eight months, it seemed as if Barnaby was having an enormous amount of control over, over, over the Liberal Party's policy or over the coalition's policy. Of course, the other place that Morrison and the Liberals think that they are stronger and where they he, he feels safer, I'm oh, sorry, I've got a question here, we'll come to you in just a sec, sir, is, is in the suburbs, right? So in the outer suburbs they, where Morrison feels more at home, uh, do we expect that there'll be any compensatory gains from there? Are you hearing any of those, Kieran? No, no. Um, I mean, they're, they're hopeful of, of maybe picking up um, – a seat like Gilmore on the south coast of New South Wales with the former New South Wales Minister Andrew Constance yeah. and also the seat of Lingiari, which is most of the Northern Territory. Yeah. There are a couple of the seats and possibly Blair, which is around Ipswich, yeah. west Fowler? of Brisbane. Um, Fowler, there's an independent uh, mm. Lee who apparently is not uh, far off Christina Kinnelly, but my advice is that Christina Kinnelly will be, will be okay. The other point to make you know when we talk about the other issues that are stretching this government in those seats to my mind the the china question mm. and the uh the beating the chest on the security threat might resonate in some parts it doesn't resonate in the teal seats and it doesn't resonate in some of those western suburbs seats like you said in sydney like reed or Bennelong. Uh, or you could say Chisholm in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, a high population of Australians of Chinese heritage mm -hmm. who uh, would also feel backlash personally, mm. and they often have a more nuanced view when it comes to China. Not that they are necessarily, you know, cheerleaders in any way for the Communist Party. Chinese nationals or the Chinese But they have a nuanced yeah. view of that country in, yeah. in our region, and I think – there is potential pushback happening in those seats. So it's, again, a stretch when you've got, say, uh, Peter Dutton making comments that might resonate in parts of the country in Queensland and elsewhere. Does Dutton re resonate anywhere but Queensland? I mean, I, <laughs> I find it hard to believe. But, uh, and I watched his very earnest press conference the other day, you know, advising of this ship on you know, 400 k's off the coast that was hugging the coast and so forth, and it, you know, I did appreciate that he said that he was doing this as a public service because they just want to be transparent, um, you know, eight days out from an election. Um, but I just, I just thought, well, you know, does this work? I, I don't know. What, what, what do you think? I think the polling shows that it doesn't. The last time I saw a polling question on this, 
Labor was ahead, so <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 a sort of a dangerous idea, really politicizing what is essentially bipartisan national well, it's security. It's our largest trading partner yeah. as well, right? Um, sir, if you wouldn't mind saying your name and uh, fire a question at us. Yes, my name is Hugh Dakin. Thank you for this evening. Um, my comment is this: that uh, with all due respect to the discussion this evening, it's been a reflection to me as an observer of the campaign. What I mean is. There's been lots of politics and lots of personality and absolutely no policy. Now, if I look at the Constitution of Australia, I see that the federal government, which is what we're electing, is responsible for foreign affairs, it's responsible for defence, it's responsible for management of the economy, it's responsible for immigration, just to list four things at the top. I, as a prospective voter on Saturday, I've heard nothing of any consequence throughout the whole campaign from either candidates or, for that matter, largely from the media, about any of those issues. It has been about politics and personalities. And I think that this is terrible as far as our democracy is concerned. Could I have your comments on that, please? It's a good question. It hasn't been a big policy campaign, has it? I mean, well, partly because of the convergence in... No, I think it's also... It's Morrison's fault, I think, um, <laughs> because of the way in which the 2019 election went. You know, Labor had a lot of policies, many of which were well thought through and would have actually, I think, made the country a better and fairer place. And Morrison just came up with no policies at all and he made... Shorten and the Labor government, the Labor made them out as if they were the government, and that was, and that they were, were, were was as if their their record was what we were voting on, and I think Labor, Labor at this time had no option but to run a small target campaign, because you can see how even with the very mind, small difference over housing policy about superannuation or the government having some equity. Morrison's made a meal of it. And, he, and Morrison was just sitting there all the time, it seemed to me, waiting for Labor to put its head up so he could make Labor's story again and rerun the 2019 strategy. So I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing what, what, um, what, what, you, what you're commenting on. Maria? Well, I think that's actually very well put. Um, I, guess, I guess I would add... Um, I think it's not that there is no policy. Like there is some policy um, in the sense that there is a differentiation, I guess, between the, uh, I guess, heuristics or litmus tests about what kinds of governments the two parties will be. I, I think if you are a voter, given what is on offer, you you could have a good guess that party A will do more likely to do X and then party B would be more likely to do Y. Is that good enough? Um, no, it's not. Uh, and, you know, um, I used to be someone, I guess, or still am, I suppose, someone who really kind of thought that voters really should have a look, um, be able to sort of see what policies are put forward before they vote. But unfortunately, the way Australian politics is kind of structured, because we don't have party manifestos, it just becomes a kind of circus anyway. And, I mean, they hold up these pieces of paper and they say we have a plan. It's like four dot points and their motherhood statements. So, and you can't even remember them. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. 
And, and I would say, um, Judith, I, I totally agree with that assessment that Labor balking this time is completely as a result of the events of three years ago. Uh, in terms of policy today, I thought Anthony Albanese uh, handled well yesterday when we go to air with this uh, podcast, but uh, he handled well the question on foreign policy and asking, is there, Michelle Grattan asked this, will there be continuity? Or will there be change when you go and meet with the quad if you win on the weekend? And he, he said, well, there will be continuity in pushing back against forward-leaning China, but there'll be change when it comes to the climate policy, which is different. It is more ambitious under Labor, and he sees it as an opportunity to build rapport and with the Biden administration. So yeah, that's right. He was talking about sort of almost implying that he would leverage that uh, the the, the um, commonality with with the Biden administration in that area for you know um, deepening the relationship, broadening the relationship. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. But I, I think Hugh's right, though. I mean, there's, you have to look to find the the policy debate in this in this election it's been a lot about personalities it's been a lot about uh, the the fear potential fear campaign that labor's trying to avoid and the government's trying to seize and we have to go back and we would also blame abbott you know that it means that we can't have a proper debate about tax because in the way he won in 2013 with the great big tax of the of the carbon tax and then with fairly modest taxes in 2019, Labor was smashed again. It's meant that the, the debate we have to have about tax, I think, um, is not – it's hard to know how it's going to happen and it doesn't – it seems to me probably can't happen in an election campaign. I think what you – yeah, I agree with that. Um, and and um, something else um, that just occurred to me as you were talking was that I thought that Albanese handled – uh, he's, started, he's changed his language. Sorry, I forgot my point and then remembered it. Um, he's changed his language. Uh, he started talking today about the fact that if they win government, that they will inherit a big mess that they have to yes. clean up. I thought that was a really interesting step change because, you know, he made an awful lot of promises today that I am sure they will have a hard time keeping and, and the government will kind of rise and fall on their ability to kind of shift the narrative um, on that basis. But, um, you you know, to go to Judith's point about, um, I thought two things at once, that's the problem. Judith's point about blaming Morrison, well, I mean, another way I guess we could blame him if we were to sort of use that framing is that because Morrison didn't really have a legacy or an agenda rather going into the last campaign and uh, he didn't really have to, he didn't really have a plan once he got there and he kind of just had to respond to events, he, what does he have substantively to discuss? You know, and I think that's that's amazing to me. I, I think we're giving Labor a little bit too much of a leave pass here. If you're going to present a, a manifesto or a body of policies to the electorate, you need to be able to defend them and to defend them well and to project them into the into the electoral marketplace. And I don't think Labor did that well in 2019. Um, you know, the, the the question about how much growth will be harmed by your 45 percent by 2030 target uh, it completely stumped shorten i remember the press conference and yes it became a narrative that uh, that morrison jumped all over and and so forth but when you are proposing change you carry a responsibility to be able to argue that that change is viable that it can be afforded 
that you actually understand all of the contingent details around it and so forth. And I don't think Labor did that well. No, and, no, they and they didn't. surrendered. I mean, to, to Judith's point, they surrendered to some extent the possibility of those policies coming up really in our foreseeable future. You can't imagine, for example, a franking credits policy ever emerging again, and yet it's exactly the kind of policy that a government ought to look at. And the negative idea of gearing, like Jason Clare was, was on Alan Kohler's thing on um, housing affordability on the 7.30, and he, he was asked about that and saying, no, whereas there's things they could do with that that wouldn't be full-blown, they could just make the rental income losses only a, a, against the cost of the property, not against your whole income. I mean, there's tweaks that could be mm. made and the whole – Range of things, and it, it and worries me. This one, ruling Claire, Claire out. Claire gave it a one-word answer, didn't he? Yeah, no, it's, it's too no. much ruling out. But I think we started off with what is it that's different about this campaign, and one of the things that strikes me as different is the extent of electoral bribery that's happening, and I, I find this really worrying because it's like, and it's it's it been also in quite a bit of the media commentary. You know, what's in it for you when you come to your vote? Um, and I think that's one of the things that the Teal Independents are responding to because they're actually all running not on hip pocket issues but on big national policy issues. Mm. But it's also there's a bit I felt with some of Morrison's comments there's almost been a little bit of a threat. You know, if you if you you electorate vote for Labor, well, don't and we're in government, don't expect very much from us. Now I'm speaking a bit as a Victorian here because there is a bit of a sense in Victoria, and Dan Andrews has been running with this, is that. We've been being punished, basically. Well, you're speaking inside a university as well, so we yeah. know a bit about well, that. Well, that's right. And you went, well, the implosion of the universities, I think, under coalition, well, that's another big story. Sir, if I can invite <laughs> you to answer, ask Hello. a question. It's, uh, you can Ian answer it here. as well if you like. Um, Daggy Dad, uh, four kids. I've got four adult kids, two nurse paramedics. A nurse has just started this year and the last one is a pharmacy assistant. Um, if I listen to Dr Norman Swan, we're losing 40 or 50 people a day from COVID. And uh, you talk about the Teals driving policy and being more policy-driven rather than the uh, pragmatic attacking politics. I'm just curious, given apparently the current Prime Minister uh, for the pandemic one-handed, um, where we sit into the future, and if I understand... Uh, from the sky side of the fence, uh, there will be a change in government, but I don't see as an undecided voter what the plan is going forward for the workforce and for the healthcare system. And we're an ageing population and everybody tells me there's not enough money in the system. And it seems to me that I can't understand why something so important to all Australians doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in Alice Springs, you're in Canberra, young or old. Um, you know, I've just had a son who's done a 14-hour shift at Canberra ED. Um, you know, someone says there's not enough money in the system. There's not only not enough money in the system for those trying to deliver the services, there's not enough people being trained through the university sector to deliver the workforce we, not, we need because the current workforce is going to walk out the door if they get the chance. So I'm just sort of interested to the panel's point of view about there's been very pragmatic bits and pieces of healthcare policy announced by the majors um, and the Teals just are in there from an influence and negotiation point of view if if they get some sort of sense of balance of right. control. 
I'll leave it there and I'll be interested in the panel's views. I'll take it. Yep. Um, I think I think in some ways you 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 answered your own question in a sense. I that did invite him to do that actually. <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that you said that well the money's not there in the in the system and um and I guess like that's a bit of a glib answer but really what we're kind of talking about here is yeah we have accumulated you know a lot of problems and policy issues and uh and and things requiring solutions and it's not just a product of this government it's a it's a product of simply coming to the end of a policy paradigm right uh and we're kind of looking for uh i guess a new model and a reinvention of our institutions and our social services and so that does mean a conversation about tax and perhaps you know, uh, the Boffins and the Labor Party are banking on a second term where they tackle some of these issues. The, the second issue is that with all the things you mentioned, um, mostly fall in the domain of state responsibilities and it goes back to that problem that we have in Australia about the vertical, vertical fiscal imbalance between the federal government and the states and the, the fact that the states are responsible for delivering services, the feds have all the money and people increasingly want the federal government to fix stuff but they don't actually have the actual Levers. And we know what the federal government's like at fixing stuff anyway, which is, if I could use the term, shit don't ass. run a hospital, do they? <laughs> we saw it during the, um, during the pandemic. I mean, it's not, uh, not the federal government's strength, that sort of direct, direct service delivery. Um, I, I thought just in the time we've got left, I might sort of go to this question that we touched on before about, um, I suppose we were, we were talking around this idea of um, what brought Labor to its let's say, minimalist position in this election campaign. If Labor doesn't win, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's possible, it's entirely possible, um, what, what will be the analysis of that? I mean, in a sense, I think the obvious one will be it rolled itself into too small a ball and did not give, even against an unpopular Prime Minister who could not, campaign in bits of the country that his own party holds and and who had all these other problems had all this legacy uh and yet labor didn't give voters and this does seem to be coming out in some of the vox pops didn't give voters enough reason to change and come across yeah where where do they start i mean it, it it's it's a diabolical um you know, unmit- unmitigated disaster if that's the result for them. Yeah. But by the same, you know, so yeah, I don't even know where you start with that, Mark. But uh, uh, I think what you've seen is during this campaign, a number of, of Labor figures emerge as future pe- uh, leaders, you know, uh, Jim Chalmers, Jason Clare uh, among them. And then if you flip it, what, what, is, what does the Liberal Party do if they lose and lose their treasurer? I mean, where does that all end up in terms of who leads that party? So if you look to Sunday, Monday, there are serious questions facing the loser. And in, in some respects, uh, I, I don't even know where you start with the Labor question because they tried one option, they've tried the other now. And if they don't win, well, they've lost a generation of, of, poli- of, of political figures through their prime who would not have been in government. Yeah, that's a good point. There'll probably be an exodus from one side or other after this, won't there? Because it mm. is it is kind of sort of becomes quite a generational question. Um, did you want to say something? Because like- I mean, there was an exodus of of liberals after the last mm. uh, before the last election when they thought they were going to lose, and they did. Yeah, that's true. Um, so they haven't got much left. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to me, don't, in terms of ministerial talent. 
Uh, sir, uh, just quickly. Yeah, I'll try and be quick. Um, hi, my name is Mitchell. My question's around media and media ownership. Uh, sorry, Kieran. <laughs> but we have seen Kevin Rudd um, pop up in the campaign and he's a big campaigner of a royal commission into media media ownership. Why does the panel think that we haven't seen it as a key issue in the campaign overall from both Labor and Liberal? Thank you. Uh, well, I think you don't want to poke the bear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to, I mean, they're self-interested. It's, yeah, precisely. It's not a good time. A bit like talking about tax. Um, elections are not a good time to be talking about media law and, uh, and creating enemies. I, I and guess. I'd like to make a comment about yeah. it because it, it's, fair, it's fair enough. Um, the, the reason they're not backing it is because neither side of politics is going to back it because it would be against their interests to back that idea at any time, let alone in an election campaign. Mm. Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull, the two protagonists in this, were among the most engaged media practitioners. And when I buy that, I mean working with every organisation, including the place where, where I work. And if you look at Kevin Rudd, the fact that he was lost the prime ministership, it was – I know that he's trying to sort of get vindication now and maybe – there, there are those that there are many that support him on that, but fundamentally, he lost that prime ministership because of his own dysfunctional relationship with his colleagues. That's that's the bottom line, and and uh, we're seeing now this this rage. And it, fine, he can do it, he, he, but he won't get political support from either of the major parties. It won't. It just is not going to happen. Yes, I think that's true. I think I agree with that. And I had been at News Corp uh, myself uh, during that period when Rudd was Prime Minister first time around. And, um, uh, yeah, I absolutely concur with the point that he was a very, very assiduous player of the media game, behind the scenes, you know, contact with editors and, and so forth all the time. Uh, they Politicians do that. They curry favour. They build relationships and... Uh, Yes, it all went it all went south, and there's there's a legitimate debate to be had about uh, about media ownership in this country, and often I think wrongly talked about purely in terms of diversity. I don't think it's just about diversity; um, it's about standards. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, I, I think it's unlikely that it's going to be driven forward by anyone. And as as Maria says, you know, in, in a sense, it's pricking the bear, and you, you just don't get that. Yeah, kind I think. Of thing. I think Diversity, like, is a serious issue. I mean, Australia is one of the most concentrated media markets um, in the Western democratic hemisphere. But I guess we are sort of seeing a fragmentation, I suppose, about where people get their their news. That said, though, um, we do know that one form of media will, like, so, you know, TV and um, radio, for example, especially that commercial radio, they will follow the lead of the local newspaper. So it, it does it does matter um, and it's probably something that only government can kind of come in to sort of correct because it's a form of market failure. You know, we have, a place, we have places where we, we have news deserts um, and there is clearly a, a space for public interest journalism and, um, yeah, it probably does require some form of state intervention to sort of see that happen. Um, I have no idea how that would happen, but yeah. Well, I guess we have some state intervention at the moment by virtue of the existence of a public broadcast. Indeed. Yeah. Um, certainly state um, 
inclusion in the marketplace, uh, and 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 long may it be the case. Um, <clears throat> I think we're going to have to leave it there because we're we're uh, we've been going for quite a long time. It is an important moment in in this country's history. A couple of days out from an election, and so I think uh, you know. Hopefully, our listeners, when they're listening to the recording of this, will have will have stayed with us for it for that very reason as well. Um, so, if I can thank Judith Brett, Kieran Gilbert, and Maria Tafaga for your comments tonight. Thank you. Thank you. And before I go, can I just do a couple of other thank yous? Thank ANU Vice-Chancellor Professor Brian Schmidt for his ongoing support for this program. It's been been very enthusiastic. Also, Professor Ray Francis, Dean of the College of Arts and Social Sciences, and Professor Sally Wheeler, who's Dean of Law and De- Deputy Vice-Chancellor for International Strategy. And I'd also like to thank uh, a number of people who, um, uh, who, who, who do the logistics and, and, uh, uh, and make other sort of policy decisions and, and, and make these things happen behind the scenes. Um, David Sprinkle, James Gigaher, uh, EP of uh, Democracy Sausage, Angus Blackman, who can't be here tonight uh, because he's actually in another country, um, and Jack and Jerry and Tracy and Adelaide and, and, and no doubt others that I've forgotten. So if you wouldn't mind giving them a round of applause, I'd appreciate it. And Democracy Sausage will be back next week with a show that I haven't even thought about yet because uh, it may be a different country. Thank you very much. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.